Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts, the book of Acts with me, the very first chapter of the book of Acts. We'll be looking at the 12th verse this morning. So Acts chapter 1 and the 12th verse. If you found that, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning, Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 12, and it reads like this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Father, this morning we have worshipped you through laughter, through our time together in fellowship, through singing, Father, through time with the children. And now we focus our attention upon your word. So I ask this of you, Father, that this morning you take all of the world's distractions and cast them away and let our minds be focused on you and what you have to say to each of us and then corporately this morning as a church. I ask you do that by making very little of me and very much of you that we may see you in all of your glory. And this I ask in the name of the word, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In case you're not aware, this month is a remarkable month in the history of Christianity in America. It's an amazing month. Many of you may not even realize it, but it is the month that God began a great movement in America that changed the nation, the culture, and the hearts of the people in America. On September the 23rd of 1857, this layman yielded to the call of God on his life and responded with what has come to be known as the Great Prayer Revival. The Great Prayer Revival, 1857. It's also known as the Great Layman Revival because it was a group of laymen that actually precipitated this movement of God in the nation. In 1857, the problem of slavery was at its very peak. And also at this same time in 1857, this economic global crisis was occurring. So there was this slavery issue that was going on and there was an economic crisis throughout all the world. And it seemed as if there was no hope. As if there was no hope in America. But God moved. But God moved in the heart of a layman. This guy by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear. Jeremiah Lanfear. He walked into his church where he had had this ministry to reach the immigrants in the community. That was his ministry in that church. And it was a Dutch reformed church in the heart of New York City. He announced that God had laid on his heart to have a daily time of prayer for the lost in that city. And God had told him that it would start with these businessmen that were there in New York. And they would come together at noon and they would pray for an hour each day with the sole purpose of, of their hearts being changed. And that lost people would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in New York City. On September the 23rd of 1857, Jeremiah Lamphere showed up at the church to begin this prayer meeting. <laughs> and at 12 o'clock noon, he was the only man there. He did what God had called him to do. He got down on his face before the Almighty God and started praying for the lost in that community. And lo and behold, 
Other businessmen started showing up. By the time they finished at 1 o'clock, there were six men gathered in this little church. They had spent time calling out to God for the lost lives in their neighborhood. For the lost lives in their neighborhood. This continued day after day after day for weeks and months on end. In a very short period of time, there were over a thousand businessmen at noon gathered in churches all over New York City praying, praying for the lost in that city. What effect? What effect did it have on the city? What effect did it have on the nation? What effect did it have on the world? For the next 40 years, the effect of what started with this prayer revival was being felt. At its peak, there were some 10,000 people a week coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in New York City alone. <laughs> the population of America at that time was about 30 million people. By the time that this prayer revival had come to its peak, one million people had come to know Jesus Christ. That's one in 30. That is one in 30. Because of its effect in America, because of what was being seen in America, the news traveled overseas. Great Britain and Ireland got in on it. They started praying and millions more came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior through this prayer revival. Not only that, but for decades, decades, the effects of this were felt. How? Because of the preachers that were affected in this. The men of God that heart was moved through this. That, that yielded to the call to share the good news of Jesus Christ for years to come. Guys like D.L. Moody, I'm sure that you've heard of. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Charles Haddon Spurgeon attributes this to, to his life being changed. Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday, who in the early 1900s preached to some hundreds of millions of people, and they have recorded millions that came to know Jesus Christ under his ministry. But you know, it even comes right down to great men of, of our time. Names like Billy Bright. Not sure if you know who Billy Bright is, but you've heard of a, a ministry that he started called Campus, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. Campus Crusade for Christ. It even stirred the heart of another young man that we all know. One of our own here in North Carolina, a man by the name of Billy Graham. Billy Graham, in 1959, or 1949, his ministry started. It stirred the heart. It's amazing how the story of this faithful layman, this Jeremiah Landfield, mirrors the story that we find ourselves in right here in the book of Acts. I don't know if you can see it. I hope you do by the time the day is over. We find 11 disciples here in Acts standing at a crossroad, just like Jeremiah Lamphere stood at. The same type of crossroad. What have we learned up to this point? That they had seen the demonstrated message in the life of Jesus, how he had showed that God had sent him to be the Savior of the world. They had witnessed this divine manifestation, if you remember. They had seen him killed. They would seen him put in a tomb. They'd gone to the tomb and seen it empty. And here they have seen him alive again in their presence for some 40 days. They had heard him. They had heard him make the promise that there was going to be a delivered might. This Holy Spirit was going to come and empower them to accomplish what he was going to give them to do. They had even had their questions answered about the kingdom. They'd had their questions answered about this declared mystery when he told them there is a kingdom to come. It is not yet time. And he said that kingdom that's going to come is going to require you to take part in a distinct mission 
if you remember. A distinct mission to spread the, uh, the message in their communities, in their nation, and to the uttermost ends of the world. If you remember, he told them that. And then he gave them that desired motivation we talked about last week. The desired motivation. What is that desired motivation? Jesus is coming again. See, they had stood and watched him leave yet again. There was a motivation to do what he had asked them to do because there was a promise. He was coming back. The end was drawing nigh. The day would come when they would stand before him and answer for what they did with that distinct mission that they had been given. And for them, just like us, we come to verse 12 where the journey begins. Where the journey begins. Today we're going to look at where the journey begins. And there are three things that Jeremiah Lamphere and the 11 disciples did that we today need to do as a church. That we today need to do as a church to begin the journey. To finish the work that Jesus Christ began. The very first thing I noticed whenever I look at this. The very first thing I noticed that they did was they had faithful obedience. There was this faithful obedience. They had just stood. They had just stood and watched Jesus be taken up into heaven in a cloud. They had just seen their leader once again vacate the premises. You know, they had seen him be taken away in death and buried and disappeared. Now he came back and suddenly, 40 days later, he's gone again. He's gone again. And it's at this point that they had a decision to make. It's at this point that they were at a crossroad. They could either walk away dejected and say, he was a fool. There's no way that what he told us was true. He didn't even hang around. Or or they could be obedient to what Jesus had asked them to do. And they stood at this this crossroad. And what is it that Jesus had asked them to do? Back in verse 4 of that same Acts chapter, it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. His direct command to them was, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem. I want you to hang out. I want you to hang out. He had told them to go to Jerusalem and wait. They were to be still and wait on the promise of this Holy Spirit's coming. And how did they respond to that instruction? Well, verse 12 that I read a while ago gives us their response to that. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. It says they returned to Jerusalem. This had become their new home base. In these last days, it had become their home base for some 40 days. They returned here probably a little confused and more than likely a little dejected with what was going on. They were not quite sure what came next. Jesus hadn't given them much of a plan. He had said, go, wait, and the Holy Spirit's going to come and said nothing else. They only knew there was one thing to do, to go and to wait. We have the luxury. We have the luxury of reading ahead to the rest of the story, but they did not. We know 10 days from this point in time, the Holy Spirit does come. We know the Holy Spirit empowers them and emboldens them to share the gospel, and we see the church explode. We know that because we can read ahead. They did not. All they knew was they were headed back to this place called Jerusalem. They were to return to Jerusalem and wait. So they left this Mount of Olivet and returned to Jerusalem. It says, what's significant about the Mount of Olivet? Today we call it the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. I've been there. 
It's a place where they were at when Jesus was taken up into heaven. More than likely on the backside, because whenever you look at it, it says they were on the Mount of Olives toward Bethany, which would have been on the opposite side of, of the Mount of Olives. It's a place that they often went with Jesus. If you remember, when you read in Scripture, they often uh, had respite in the Mount of Olives, on the Mount of Olives with Jesus as they spent alone time with Him. Most times just them and not the crowds. It's also the place that about halfway down the western side of, of the face of Mount of Olives as you're headed towards Jerusalem is this little place that we've come to know as the Garden of Gethsemane. A little place called the Garden of Gethsemane. About halfway down the side of that mountain. And we know about that place where he went and prayed and was often there in that place. So it's a place, this, this Mount of Olives, Mount of Olivet, is a place that they're very, very familiar with. And Jesus tells them to leave this place of familiarity and go to the place that they had been just days before. The place that they had been during his trial and his death. You know, it would have been much easier on them if he just said, go hide in the Garden of Gethsemane. Go to the place that you're used to spending time with me and wait. But he said, no, go back to Jerusalem. <laughs> go back to Jerusalem. And verse 12 tells us that they were obedient. It says that they were obedient and they returned. It says a Sabbath day's journey. Remember, a Sabbath day's journey comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the, the length of paces that they could walk on a Sabbath day without breaking the law. If you read back in uh, Leviticus, I believe it is, it gives you that instruction as being it was the furthest uh, tent away from the temple when they had the, the temple set up in the tent city as they were traveling around in the desert. And it was the furthest distance from that tent to the temple. That number of steps was the number of journeys. So it was a Sabbath day's journey, not saying that it, was, it took them a day to get there. It's really about a half a mile from the top of that down to the city of Jerusalem. But they, they went on this journey, this walk down to this place. And when they got to the place, notice that it says they went to a place that they felt very safe. In verse 13 it said, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room. Up into the upper room. It may have been the same upper room where Jesus had taken off his outer garment, girded himself, grabbed a bowl, and washed each of their feet. It may have been the same upper room where they witnessed the doing away of the Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper, if you remember the story. It could have been the same upper room. It could have been the same upper room when they heard Jesus say, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. See, it could have been the same upper room where Peter, in all of his boldness, says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. See, it could have been the same upper room where they gathered behind locked doors. And it says in Luke 24, 34, that they were saying, the Lord, the Lord, he's risen. He's risen indeed. And they're talking about his risen Christ together. It's probably the same room where Jesus appeared through a locked door. And he said those words that I think are the understatement of the century. Peace to you. See, this upper room was a place of comfort for them. They retreated to this upper room. They, they hid in this upper room. And who was it? Who was it that returned to the upper room? Who was it that was faithful and obedient? If you look at the 13th verse there of Acts 1, it says, And when they entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. It says, and you'll recognize these names, Peter, James, 
John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Judas the son of James. Who, who are those? Did anybody count the number by any chance? It's 11 names. It's 11 remaining disciples. Minus one who had betrayed. It's these 11, 11 disciples. It also goes on to tell us that Mary, the mother of Jesus was there. There were, there were others there. But specifically, it names those 11. Those 11. Those 11 have been given a mission. Those 11 have been given instruction. And they were gathered together in this place. And it says that those numbers grew because in, in verse 15, it even says, And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names was about 120. It says that there, there were others that were there in those days. What were those days? The days that they were huddled together. Those 10 days, as we've come to know, between the time that Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit fell on them. How many were gathered? 120. See, because of their faithful obedience to Jesus' command, the numbers continued to grow even as they hid away in the upper room. Even as they hid away in the upper room, the numbers grew from this 11 and the few women that were with them to 120 people that were gathered together. Why? Because of faithful obedience to Jesus' command. There's another thing they did besides just have faithful obedience. The second thing you'll notice as you read that, they had frequent fellowship. Frequent fellowship. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture does it tell us exactly what they did for the 10 days between the Ascension and Pentecost, as we've come to know it, the day that the Holy Spirit fell on them. But logic would tell us that they did not lock themselves in the upper room and just sit there. I've stood in what they believe is the upper room. For 120 people to stay in that room for 10 days would have got a touch uncomfortable. It might have been a good place together, but there would have been no way that you would have been able to sleep there. Most of the ones who had come together had homes there in Jerusalem now, or at least places they could stay. In fact, all they had to do to be obedient to Jesus' command was to go to Jerusalem, not huddle behind locked doors in fear. He said, go to Jerusalem and wait. Don't go to Jerusalem and cower down and hide away. See, they would have gone about their daily routines, going to the market for food, visiting the ones that they knew in Jerusalem, probably even out telling about this Jesus that they had seen alive, this Jesus that had come back. But there's one thing for certain that we know that they did because the Scripture tells us they fellowship together with frequency. It tells us there in verse 14 of Acts 1, it says, These all continued with one accord. With one accord. <laughs> that word translated there, continued, is the Greek word that's proskatereo is the word. Proskatereo. And it's kind of interesting to, to know what that word means. Because it means to be earnest towards, to persevere, or to be consistently diligent. Consistently diligent. I find that very interesting because what the Bible is telling us is that they were consistently diligent about fellowshipping together. 
They were consistently diligent about getting together. They were constantly getting together as a unified group of believers. And what would they have done whenever they were together? Matter of fact, jump forward in the story to the second chapter. The second chapter of Acts in verse 42, it tells us this. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. You see, as you jump forward in the story, you notice they gathered together frequently. What they did was they worshipped. They gathered together and continued in the doctrine, the teachings that they had heard, that message that Jesus had demonstrated. And now the apostles were teaching, the disciples were teaching. They continued together in fellowship. They continued together in breaking of bread, which makes me believe they were probably the first Baptist. And that's what we always do, the breaking of bread. And it says they continued together in prayer. It was important for them to be unified if they were going to finish this work that Jesus had began. They needed to be of one doctrine. They needed to be in one fellowship so that they could minister to each other's needs. They needed to have a bond that would allow them to open up their hearts to each other without fear of condemnation from their their fellow brother or sister in Christ. They ate together. And let's face it, one of the greatest signs of acceptance, even in our time today, is when someone invites you over to their house to eat. It's one of the greatest compliments that can be given to anyone to say, hey, would you come sit at my table and eat with me? It's a sign of acceptance. Sharing a meal together, in case you're not aware of it, breaks down a lot of barriers between people. A lot of barriers. And then it says they prayed together. They spent time in one accord with one heart at the throne of grace in prayer to an almighty God. And let me tell you, church, if there's one thing that is missing in our churches today, it's constant fellowship. It is constant fellowship. I'm not talking about where we set up the fellowship hall and we get together and eat. That's different. What I'm talking about is the days that you invited people into your homes to sit at your table, to share the word of God together, to talk about the struggles in their life, to tell them about the victories in your life. What is missing in our church today is the fact that we don't get together very often any longer. And understand this, one day we're going to experience what it means to truly fellowship when Jesus calls us home and we sit around a table called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Wouldn't you like to know you've been rehearsing that before you do it in front of our Lord and Savior? Wouldn't you like to know that when you gather at the table you can look to your left and to your right and see those that you've already set at the table and broke bread with in your own home? Wouldn't you like to know that you've been obedient to the call of fellowship together before the day? That you do it in the presence of your Lord and your Savior. See, we need to have more frequent fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we had more frequent fellowship, we'd be like the ones gathered in that upper room. It says there in Acts 1.14 that they were in one accord. One accord. You know what frequent fellowship brings you? Unity. It brings you unity. Not all believing the same thing like a bunch of robots. That's not what unity is. No, unity is the ability to disagree while remaining very agreeable. See, when you have fellowship with someone, you come to know their heart. And when you disagree with that person on something, you can trust their heart. You can make room for discussion about those things that are non-essential. You can sit at the table with an open Bible seeking for the answer to questions. It goes from finding out who is right and who is wrong to finding out what is right 
and what is wrong. It goes from being about getting your way to finding God's way. It goes from being the all-knowing on a subject to looking to the all-knowing God himself. When we have frequent fellowship with one another, you start focusing on lifting one another up and not lifting yourself up. You see, when there is a disagreement, you know the heart of the one with which you disagree with. And you can reject their idea if it's not correct in your heart and mind without rejecting them. Which is a problem we have not only in our world today, we have in our church today. If a person doesn't believe like we believe on a non-essential subject, we not only reject their idea, we reject them. If it's not one of the foundational things of the faith, that you can only be saved through Jesus Christ, that there is one God that is a triune God, if it's not one of those foundational things, the rest is open for discussion. And it's not worth breaking a fellowship with a brother and sister in Christ over whether or not you should do some incidental thing or whether or not we should practice some incidental thing. It's not worth the fellowship. It should be unity in all things. Remember, remember what Christ said as he was headed to the cross. Father, I pray that they be one as you and I are one. He's about to crawl on the cross and give his life for your sins. And what was his prayer? That we would be one as they are one. Fellowship brings unity And notice how faithful obedience and frequent fellowship lead to the third thing. (laughs) Fervent prayer. Fervent prayer. Acts 2 tells us they were together in prayer. Acts 1.14 says that these all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication. The Bible said they were gathered together making supplication. Well, what is supplication? I found it interesting that it mentions prayer and supplication, the two things. So there must be two different things that they were doing. So one of the things that we look at whenever we think about prayer and supplication, we can just look back to the author of Acts, back to his original book, uh, what we can call Acts 1 or Luke 1, but the, the book of Luke where he started this grand story. In Luke 1, uh, verse 13, it says this, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Here's the interesting thing about the way we translate words into English. Whenever you read that word prayer, you would think we were talking about their prayer, not their supplication in the Acts passage. The only issue is the word translated prayer here is the word that's translated supplication in Acts. It's actually a supplication. It should read, do not be afraid for your supplication is heard. (laughs) Your supplication is heard. The word translated there is the same. It gives us an indication that Zacharias was asking God for a very specific thing. And that specific thing was what? It tells us that his wife would have a child. There's this very, very specific thing that he was asking for. How do we also know that? Stay in Luke, flip over to the second chapter, over to the second chapter of Luke. In that uh, second chapter of Luke, verse number 36, we see this. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phineal, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with her husband for seven years from virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. And coming in that instance, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jesus. Again, 
That word that is translated prayer there is the same word in Acts. It says supplication. She was giving this supplication. We see here a widow that served God through supplication, through praying, through praying and fasting, fasting in the temple. It does not tell us what she fasted and supplicated or prayed for. But I think looking at verse 38, we can get a pretty good idea of what it was. Make an educated guess. She was praying in thankfulness to God for all that he had done. And her specific supplication was for the redemption of others. For them to know the same redemption of sin that she had come to know. The redemption. So supplication. Supplication is coming to God with specific needs either for ourselves or for others. So they were making the supplication. That comes directly out of their fellowship. How is it that you can make supplication for your brother and sister in Christ? To know your brother and sister in Christ. The more you fellowship with those around you, the better you can stand in the gap for them within Almighty God because of the concerns in their life. See the beautiful picture? See what fellowship brings? It brings the opportunity for supplication. It says those gathered made supplication, but it also says, it also says there in Acts that they prayed. I'll be honest with you, this is the part of prayer that most Christians never get. This is the part of prayer most Christians never get. Supplication? We all get that. My phone rang all morning long this morning with people asking for me to supplicate on their behalf. We have one being operated on this morning. We have one that just got some bad news about some cancer in her life. Got a call this morning that someone had died and the family will be gathering today um, that is uh, loosely connected with us. All those things this morning. Those were all prayers of supplication that I was asked about. All prayers of supplication. We're all good at that. We gather on Wednesday night. We go over a bulletin that on the back of that bulletin is packed completely full. Completely full of supplications. But there's a part of prayer that we miss. There's a part of prayer that we miss. If supplication is coming into God on behalf of others' needs, then what is prayer? Look back at Luke with me again since we used it for a reference of supplication. Look at Luke 6. Luke 6. In verse 12 it says, Now it came to pass in those days he, talking about Jesus, went out to the mountain and prayed and continued all night in prayer to God. Jesus had gone to the mountain to pray. And we know that he would have been praying to the Father because it says he was praying there to God. And it does not tell us what he prayed for. Do you notice? But I think if you read that next verse, the 13th, we can again make an educated guess when it says, And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he had also named apostles. What do you think Jesus' prayer was when he was on that mountain? Was it for the healing of neighbor? Was it for the lame guy to walk? No. What Jesus' prayer was is, Father, let your will be my will. Let me choose those that you desire. Let your mind be my mind. Let me think like you think. Let me do that which you would have me do. See the difference in supplication and prayer? You can see it again in Luke 22. Flip over to Luke 22. In Luke 22, that uh, 45th verse, this is a story you know very well. It says, when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. 
Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. Jesus was in the garden. Jesus was in the garden and he was praying. He was praying and he told the disciples there, he said, you should have been praying. The word there for prayer is the word supplication when he was speaking to the disciples. Why? Because they were supposed to be praying lest they enter into temptation. They were praying that they would not fall into temptation. But Jesus' prayer of supplication or Jesus' prayer there in the garden was very different. You remember the prayer? You remember the prayer? He said, Father, if there's any way, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup? His imminent death. His separation from God because of our sin. He said, if there's any way. But how did he finish that prayer? But only, Father, if it's your will. You see, when he fell down on his face to his father and he prayed, he wasn't worried about his physical being. He wasn't worried about those around. What he was worried about is, can I see the world through your eyes, God? He said, can I look at this world and see them the way you see them? If I see them the way you see them hanging upon the cross, we'll be nothing. He said, let my will be your will. He desired to pass on the cross, but only if it was God's will. And it says, whenever they gathered together there in Acts, it says, whenever they gathered together in prayer, what they were doing is the will of God not only became a personal will for them, as they prayed, but it became a corporate will for all those that were gathered together. It became a corporate will. This doesn't happen overnight. This isn't something you could say, we're going to start having a prayer meeting tomorrow. We'll meet every Monday. We'll pray for an hour. And by Tuesday, the world will be right. <laughs> the world won't be right because we won't be right by Tuesday. <laughs> We won't understand God's will. It doesn't happen overnight. They gather together frequently, frequently together. They fellowshiped and prayed probably multiple times a day. They had learned each other's heart, but more importantly, they had started to learn the heart of God in this mission that they were about to go out and do. We can do nothing personally. We can do nothing corporately until we come to know the heart of God. God. There's nothing. There is nothing that we can accomplish. And how do we come to know the heart of God? <laughs> Through time and prayer, seeking the will of God. And it isn't good enough to just know His heart personally in our life, not just for our personal life. As a part of the body of Christ at Morse Creek Baptist Church, you must know the heart of God for the church. And it can't come in one hour a week on Sunday. It can't come by adding an hour of Sunday school to it. It can't come by gathering for another hour on Wednesday night. No, it only comes through faithful obedience to what God's called us to do through frequent fellowship together and then that fellowship being bathed in fervent prayer together. See, nothing happens for Christ until the people of Christ get serious about the body of Christ and do what the disciples did at Jesus' command. We need to be faithful in our obedience. Mitchell mentioned earlier that we stuffed some 2,000 bags last Sunday. Some 2,000 bags. The purpose of that is to put into every home in our zip code, in the zip code of Atkinson, North Carolina, the gospel. 
with a free track and a free uh, DVD that has three videos on it that explain the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus through the eyes of Mary Magdalene, the story of Jesus through the eyes of a child. It is to put the gospel message and get their hearts thinking about the gospel in 2,000 homes. God's already called us to go do that to our neighbors and to share the gospel message with them, and He's provided it for free. It cost us nothing. They sent that to us for free to go do. And I know for many that's a little uncomfortable. It's a lot uncomfortable. It's a lot uncomfortable for them. But God hasn't called us to be comfortable. I hope you understand that. He hasn't called us to be comfortable. He's called us to go about the mission of the church to start sharing the gospel where we're at and keep sharing that gospel until it gets to the othermost ends of the world. He didn't call us to sit on a pew in the air condition under the three billion lights in this place, listen to a sorry sermon, and go home and say, this has been good. No. He's called us to put feet to the message and put it in the lives of those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that one day will not be in a place called heaven, but will spend eternity in a place called hell. He's called us to take that gospel message. And I've already had some say to me, Pastor, that's just not my thing. Buckle your seatbelt and put on your steel-toed shoes because i got a question for you. I have to ask, what part of loving your neighbor just ain't your thing? What part of taking up your cross daily ain't your thing? What part of going into all the world and sharing the gospel ain't your thing? What about any of that is not for you? Listen to me and listen to me closely. The mission Jesus Christ has given us to spread the gospel ain't about you. It ain't about you. It ain't about me. It's about that neighbor that lives next door that's lost in sin that's going to spend an eternity in a place called hell unless you share the gospel with them. And unless they come to believe that gospel and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, their eternity is a place called hell. You stand before Jesus when he returns and say, I didn't love them enough, even though you told me to love my neighbor as myself. You answer to Jesus for that, because this old boy ain't. See, he's called us to share the gospel. Jesus commanded us to be a witness. It's not up for debate. We're not going to put it on the floor on Wednesday night and vote on it. The head of the church said, do it. We're going to do it. The one who gave up everything for us to step from the portals of glory, to put on flesh, to be spit upon, to be beaten, to die on a cross. He gave up everything for you, has asked one thing of you. Finish the work I've started. Finish the work I've started. We need, we need to desperately be in frequent fellowship together. We need... We need to not only be obedient to share the message, we need to be in frequent fellowship together. The only way the church of Jesus Christ can make an impact in this world is to be unified. And the only way we can be unified is to know each other's heart and more importantly, know the heart of God for each of us and for us corporately. We need to be able to open and honestly have discussions with each other about the shortcomings in our life and know that the person who's going to pray for us not go tell their neighbor. 
We need to know that when we look a person in the eye and say, I have failed in this area, that we are going to be iron sharpening iron with each other and restore each other to the faith, not backbite and talk about each other. See, we need to know that when we're beaten and robbed on the road, that our brother or sister in Christ is going to be the good Samaritan and pick us up and look after us. But most importantly, church, we need to be in frequent prayer. We need to be in fervent, frequent prayer. Not just fervent prayer for the physical needs. Yes, God wants to heal physical needs and does daily. I will leave here in just a few minutes. I will drive to the hospital and I will lay hands on a person who was just operated on today and beg God to heal them with full trust that he will do it if it's within his will. He still heals. But understand this. It's not about us. It's not about this body lasting for all the days. It's about where this soul winds up. And it's where the soul of each of you winds up. It's where you spend eternity that matters. And that's about God. The bulk of our time in prayer should be focused on God. Not focused on our needs or even focused on the needs of others. Unless that need is for Jesus Christ. If we're focused on God in our prayers to the point His will becomes our will, then there will be fewer physical needs in this world that we need to pray about. I believe there are those that have been on our prayer list since I came here that we've been praying for that God is wanting to heal them. God is wanting to touch them. But you know what He's waiting on? He's waiting to do it through us. And He can't. Because we don't even know he's trying to use us. Because we're too worried about our will. And we're not trying to be focused on his will. If we cared more about his will being done, there'd be less hurt in this world. And ultimately, there'd be less lost in this world. If we prayed for God's will to become our will, there'd be less lost in this world. You may ask, Pastor, how do you know that? How do you know that lining up with God's will would make the world have lost less lost people? It's simple. Jesus answered that one for us. In Luke 19.10 he said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he has told us, as he told the disciples at his departure, that we're to carry on the work he began. What work did he begin? The seeking and the saving of the lost. We're to continue with that. How are we to do it? How are we to do it? By being witnesses to our families, our neighbors, our communities, our nation, ultimately to the ends of the world. And until God's people get unified behind the mission Jesus has given us to continue that, there will be people dying and going to hell every day without the gospel having ever affected their lives. How do we unify how do we accomplish? How do we finish the work that Jesus has started? Simple. Same way the disciples did in the 10 days between the ascension and the time that Pentecost fell and the Holy Spirit came. We need to be faithfully obedient to all that God asks us to do. All. The only way you can be faithfully obedient is to be obedient in all things. We need to have frequent fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to love on each other. We need to know each other's hearts. We need to speak into each other's lives. And then we need to be in fervent prayer. 
The one thing that is the easiest thing to do as a Christian is the thing we lack the most. It's being on our face before an almighty God. Begging that we could see His will and live out that will in this world for His glory. And the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's simple. It's simple. Obedience, fellowship, and prayer. I ask you this morning, church. Do you care about the mission that Jesus has given us? Do you care that your neighbor's dying and going to a place called hell? Do you care that every day there are those who are leaving this earth having never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? I can with all confidence tell you this. God cares. God cares. Maybe this morning you're sitting in this place and you, you can't with all honesty say that there's ever been a day that you've recognized your sin and recognize that the sin in your life, there was absolutely zero you could do about it. There's never been a day that you've come to the point to say, the only way that sin in my life can be taken care of is by trusting in what God did for me through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But the Bible tells us we all have sinned to come short of the glory of God, and that the, the wages, the payment for that sin is eternal death in a place called hell. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life. And that gift of God comes through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because He so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son to die for your sin. That if you would believe in Him, you would have eternal life forever. Maybe this morning you can't with all honesty say that there has been a day that you have really said, you know what? Without Jesus, I have no life. Guess what? He stands at the door this morning knocking. He stands at the door saying, open the door to your heart. Believe in your heart that I died on a cross for your sins, that I was buried and rose three days later that you might have life. And then confess with your mouth that I am Lord and Savior. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.